Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. Finally, an episode about Zero Knowledge on the Zero Knowledge podcast. Today, Anna and I sit down to talk intro to Zero Knowledge Proofs. So yeah, today we're going to be talking about zero knowledge proofs. And uh, it's very much like an introduction because none of us are experts. I've never coded up a zero knowledge proof implementation of anything. I've never even used a zero knowledge proof library. Uh, the the greatest extent of usage I've had is using Zcash. So uh, I think we're both noobs in this area, but we've been reading and we're we're trying to like break it down to a level um, that you can get an intuition for it, at least. And, I, and we do hope you'll bear with us, too. We are trying to de- describe a pretty complicated concept in a podcast, um, but we have, we have really, you know, we've thought about it. I think we have some ideas on how to get this across. Cool. So do you want to just do that? What is a, what's a zero-knowledge proof? Sure. It's um, a, an area within cryptography, really. Uh, it's not a specific thing. It's like a, f- a field of study. Uh, and really, a, a zero-knowledge proof is a method by which a prover, like party one, a prover, can prove to another party, the verifier, that he or she knows some statement. So they can either prove a universal statement, like there is a solution to this problem, or they can prove some knowledge, like I know the solution to this problem. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's a proof about like the resulting thing is a one bit value. It's a true or false. So the answer that you're verifying is like it comes out as true, true or false. Like I know this, true or false. Uh, this is true. It's true or true or false. And they do this without revealing any knowledge about this like the background, the statement. Mm -hmm. So they should be able to say, I know the solution to this problem and prove that they know the solution to this problem without showing the solution. And that's actually, so we asked, I also asked around like a couple of people and just to to see if I can get one liners. And one of them was demonstrating that, you know, a secret without revealing it. Yeah. So you have a secret. I want to know that you have a secret. You can somehow prove to me that that secret exists, but I have no idea what that secret is. Yeah. Okay, so when we were first doing a lot of this research, I had a, for just a a short while, I was wondering if there was any relationship to what we had talked about when we were doing, we were doing a podcast on hashing and proof of work, because I know that proof of work is this concept where you get a hash, which proves that work has been done. Um, And I was like, okay, so, so is that potentially a form of zero knowledge proof? I found out it isn't. Um, maybe you can explain why that is. So the the hash in proof of work does indeed prove that work has been done, but not on its own. So if you just get this hash, you like you have no context for what it means or why it is what it is. Uh, you don't know what has been hashed to produce this. So it proves nothing alone. So it really doesn't prove anything on its own. Yeah. 
Um, it only proves something within the context of the block. So you need all of the knowledge of the block. So you need the full block that has been hashed mm. and the hash so that you can rehash this block, compare it to the hash that was given and say, okay, the person actually did this work. Because in proof of work, like the, the simplest version of it is you change a, a, a nonce a number, just incre incrementing it by one all the time until you find some hash with a specific property. And the only way to verify that is to have all the data and recalculate the hash yourself. So it's a proof, but it, it's a proof that requires full knowledge of mm -hmm. the solution. And the zero knowledge proof requires none of that. Yeah. So the zero knowledge proof is an end, like there's a sort of result that allows you to decipher that like that this this activity has happened without any other information this activity or this question or this inf information exists without any other information the uh comparison i guess to proof of work would be and like it's an interesting thought i, I have never seen any idea around this uh, i assume it doesn't exist but uh, if you could have a zero knowledge proof of work it would be know something that says i have produced work for this block without showing the block mm. um in the blockchain you need to show the block regardless because everyone needs to have it so it's not super useful um but there's there's other things and we'll get to that later in the podcast that uh, makes zero mm. knowledge proofs very useful for blockchain applications so zero knowledge proofs have become sort of i mean first of all we actually forgot to mention this this is also the name of this podcast it is apparently a it is an, a word that in the last few years has become very very popular it uh, the field of research has become i mean i think it's always been there but it, it seems like it's become kind of cool or something yeah like there's trendy. definitely some amount of hype around it um After Zcash got launched, yeah, definitely saw an uptick in like people claiming to do zero knowledge stuff. And but even before then, I remember seeing like hack pads and various like login systems that claim to have zero knowledge, like mm. identities in their systems and or like zero knowledge encryption of your contents. Um, And I don't like I never really knew what that would mean. <laughs> like for the authentication system, I can sort of get it, but I don't know. It, mm. So it's been around and it's been a bit hyped for a while, but certainly since the launch of Zcash, it's gotten more hyped. But it's actually an older concept. So it it comes from the 80s. It was in uh, 1985 that the uh, like original paper on zero knowledge proofs came out from uh, MIT researchers uh, Goldwater Goldwasser. Actually, how do you pronounce that in English? I have no idea. Gold, Goldwasser. <laughs> Goldwasser. Goldwasser. Um, Macaulay and Rakoff. Yeah, so the, it actually has been around for a while. And, and obviously, its introduction into like crypto concepts, like crypto token concepts is newer. Um, yeah, so maybe we can... I think, it's, I think we can sort of jump in now and um, start exploring what a zero-knowledge proof really looks like. And to do that, uh, we've identified a couple examples that we've heard used by presenters or on, you know, on, on videos, or we've seen them documented in, in papers. There's some sort of easier to understand examples using real life objects or, you know, roles um, to try to explain what a zero knowledge proof is. And the first one that we're going to use is actually coming from a paper called Applied Kid Cryptography or How to Convince Your Children You Are Not Cheating. This is a paper. Um, 
And the example is a Where's Waldo, not puzzle, a Where's Waldo picture. Is that a universal thing? I'm pretty sure it's a universal thing. Like Where's Waldo as a... a, What's it called in Swedish? uh, I I don't know. So like we never, I've never seen like a proper Where's Waldo book when I was a kid. But we had cereal boxes that had like Where's Waldo pictures on the back of them. (laughs) And I don't know if it was Waldo or if it was like someone else, but it was the exact same like thing. So the concept the rip off exists. Waldo. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, there is a German version. I think it's called like Voice Walta or something like that. Okay. Um, but anyway, where's Waldo? I'll describe what it is if people don't understand. Where's Waldo is a, was a very popular book series where you'd have this very intricate drawing of a ton of like thousands of little people. And one of those people is Waldo and he always looks exactly the same. And as a kid, you're supposed to just like look at this and then identify where Waldo is. But anyway, so the book is like a regular kind of like a a kid's book. It's a little bit of a big book, but anyway, so the zero knowledge idea or exercise here would be to have two people. One has found Waldo. The other has not found Waldo. And the person who's found Waldo wants to prove that they found Waldo without giving away where Waldo is. So we have this system with a prover and a verifier. So there's there's one person that wants to prove that they found Waldo. The other needs to verify whether or not the prover is telling the truth and has actually found him. And so what the prover, there's a few different mechanisms that the prover could do to show that Waldo, that he or she has really identified where Waldo is without revealing where Waldo is. Um, And I'll describe two of them. So one is you get a giant piece of paper, you cut out a little hole, you hide the book underneath, and it's a big enough paper that you can't tell where the book is, and you figure out exactly where Waldo's face is, and you kind of show it through the hole. And so the verifier can look at a blank piece of paper in a little hole and see Waldo and know that you, the prover, have identified Waldo but not have any idea where Waldo is. Another example was that you would make a copy of it and then you could cut out Waldo and show that you found Waldo and get rid of all the other paper and the person would know that you'd actually found Waldo without showing where Waldo is. So this is a very, very basic example of a interactive zero knowledge proof. Our next example is going to be a a far more common example. Well, it's kind of a variation on a very common example. There's an example called the billiard balls and they'll have one billiard ball of one color and one of another. We decided to switch it. We're going to call it red pill, blue pill. Um, (laughs) Let's try to do this, Frederick. We're actually going to play the roles here. One of prover, one of verifier. All right. Am I proving? Um, who's the colorblind one? The, the verifier. I think I want to be the verifier. All right. So the scenario here is one of us. So I am not colorblind and Anna is colorblind. And I want to prove to her that I am not colorblind. I th- actually, don't you want to prove to me that the pills are different colors? That's the same thing. Okay. Okay. So we have two pills, a red pill and a blue pill. Because of the nature of it, we'll pretend we're in a rave in in the matrix and one pill goes up and one pill goes down, but I want to take two pills that will leave me right in the middle. We need to have, basically, I will take both pills if possible, as long as they're different, but I'm colorblind. And they look exactly the same to me. And so, Frederick, how can you prove to me that they are actually different colors? So I would, I would ask you to put 
one pill in each hand, mm-hmm. put them behind your back, yeah, and then either shuffle them or don't shuffle them. Okay. But do it in, like, I can't see whether or not you're shuffling or not shuffling. It's only a thing that you keep track of in your own head, if you've shuffled or not shuffled. So I always know, like, I know that, like, the red pill's in my left hand, the blue pill's in my right hand, and then I can either, sw- I can switch them. You don't know which is in which hand. <laughs> True. To me, there's two purple pills in my hand. But I do know if I've switched it or not. Yeah. And so I ask you to either switch them or not switch them and then bring them out and show them to me. And I'll say, yes, you switch them. Because I can see the colors. Like, clearly, I can see whether or not you switch them because, like, it's super obvious to me that, like, they're in the same place or they're not. And so now I say, yes, you've switched them. But with only one example, you could be lucky. You could have just been like, oh, yeah, they're both like in reality. And so say they weren't different colors. They're both probably just say switch. And I actually switch them. You happen to be right. Yeah. But now if you redo this, if you again put it, I put the pills behind my back. I switch them again. I pull them out. If you are able to correctly call each time I switch or don't switch, then I can... I can then know that you're telling the truth. So on the first attempt, I would have a 50-50 chance of guessing the right answer. And then I, you know, the probability goes down. Maybe after 10 guesses, it's still pretty, like, it's unlikely that I'd guess correctly 10 times in a row. Yeah. But after 100 times or 1,000 times or a million times, surely I, I know for sure that they are different colors and mm-hmm. which color is which. And I can then trust that you have, in fact, been telling the truth, that there are two pills with two different colors. And it's zero knowledge because I don't actually have to tell you which color is which. I, like, I, I, the only information I reveal is whether or not you have switched them, which you already know. So I don't actually have to tell you anything about their colors. And there is no information exchange or other than the fact that they're different you now know that i can see them di- as different colors <laughs> maybe we can we can sort of use this example to talk a little bit about like the features of zero knowledge proofs because those are quite well defined so in this example in all zero knowledge examples you should be able to prove three main things this is uh, like the definition of a zero knowledge proof is, is these three properties So zero-knowledge proof must have soundness, completeness, and zero-knowledgeness, which is a real word. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure, like, if something, if a a field, like in academia or something, makes up a word, does that make it a real world, or is it a made-up word still? It's on Wikipedia. No. (laughs) Um, Okay, so how is this sound? So the definition of soundness is, if the statement is false, no cheating prover can convince the honest verifier that it is true, except with some small probability. Put more simply, only if it is true will I be able to prove that it's true. So basically, I can't construct a proof that lies. And like in this example, because Frederick was correct each time, the basically it, it it would have been impossible if i was lying and was actually colorblind i would i would guess wrongly at some point exactly 
So th there is this probability aspect of it. Um, there is, to my knowledge, I don't know if there can be a, a zero knowledge proof that doesn't have a probability aspect to it. I think that this is clear here because it says except for some small probability. So essentially, like in this example, we only know with some probability, like the probability gets smaller and smaller the more tests we do. But like you can choose your mm -hmm. how comfortable you are with what probability. So the next feature, as mentioned, was completeness. If the statement is true, the honest verifier can convince can will be convinced by this fact by an honest prover so so uh, the way i would kind of think about this and it sounds very similar to the previous one because it actually kind of is but only if i have the knowledge will i be able to prove it so in the previous one i, I said like only if it's true will i be able to prove it mm. and now it's like if i uh, only if i have that knowledge will i be able to prove it so i can't prove something like even if it exists like even if it is true but i don't know it i can't prove it um so in the blue pill red pill example like i have that knowledge of what which color is which but maybe like if i was if i could see color but wasn't looking at the situation i, I still couldn't construct a proof like even if the property that lets me construct a proof exists, but I don't have the knowledge. I can't construct it. <laughs> <laughs> so so sound, soundness is sort of prover can't cheat. And completeness is that the verifier will be convinced by an honest prover. And the last of the three core features, so we've got, we've covered soundness and completeness. So far, it's zero-knowledgeiness. <laughs> I think this spelled different ways. Zero-knowledgeness. Zero-knowledgeness is if the statement is true, no verifier learns anything other than the fact that the statement is true. And so actually, in this case, I didn't know which one was red or which one was blue. I only knew that they were different. Yeah. So the, the statement that we're proving in this example is they are different. It's not this is blue or this is red. That might not be information that I want to divulge. So I'm. that's the only thing I'm proving, and I'm not giving you any more information than that. So that's the zero-knowledgeness. Um, zero-knowledgeness actually means that you're you're giving one bit of information. <laughs> so it's not zero bits, but <laughs> because that would be completely useless. Um, it means that you don't give more than one bit of information. But this is interesting, too, because I think zero-knowledgeness also covers the fact that a third party or someone, every verifier, anyone else, is this true, could actually also somehow verify it. Yeah. So uh, in, we'll get to this, but there's interactive and non-interactive proofs. In an interactive proof, it's two parties playing a role and like talking to each other. Um, in a non-interactive proof, you could publish this proof and then anyone can verify it. Uh, without gaining any information. So I, that certainly, the zero-knowledgeness is, is an inherent property of zero-knowledge proofs, but it also means that you can construct proofs that you can distribute freely without sharing information. And maybe we can give, so we're going to give one more example in a bit more detail uh, where we can actually show a, a non-interactive. This, this is a bit more complicated, <laughs> but... 
I think it's really, it's a really good one. Um, we will be sharing some links, uh, in the show notes for this episode because sometimes it is really good to also look at the visuals. But, um, Frederick, do you want to, do you want to go ahead with Sudoku? Yeah. Non-interactive example. So I think that this, this example is useful to bring up because it's an example of a non-interactive proof. So I said, yeah, interactiveness means there's two parties that need to talk to each other, um, there's a sort of a challenge response mechanism going on. And in a zero-knowledge proof, we always need this challenge response mechanism. But uh, we can sort of generate challenges and, and reply with all the responses at once. And then the verifier can just take all of this data and verify it on their own. Um, so that's what a non-interactive zero-knowledge proof is. So the Sudoku example is... Um, I, I will assume that everyone knows how Sudoku works, <laughs> but there's uh, rows, there's columns, and there's sections. So in each section, like in a solved Sudoku puzzle, uh, each row is numbers one through nine, each column is numbers one through nine, and each section is numbers one through nine. And you want to prove that you have a solution to this puzzle, but you don't want to give the solution away. Like maybe you want to sell this solution or something. Uh, and so what you can do is you take cards with numbers on them, one through nine. You need mm -hmm. 243 of these cards. It's nine times nine times three because there's, there's three like categories. There's rows, columns, and sections. So on mm -hmm. each square, uh, you either know the value, like it's printed on the puzzle, or you don't. And for the known ones, you put like that number three times three of that card on top. For the other numbers, you put the cards face down. And then to construct the proof that you have a solution, you take the top card from all of the rows, construct mm -hmm. nine piles of cards from them. You take so you have nine rows, like all the rows have piles with the, and each one of those piles will have the number one through nine yeah. in it. And so then you take all of the columns, um, the top card from every square in the column, create mm -hmm. nine piles of cards out of them. Mm -hmm. And then you create nine piles of cards with the last ones remaining from each section. So you have 27 piles and you shuffle each of these piles and then you send them all to the verifier. Now mm. the verifier, but you keep, you, you keep all of these separate. So you're keeping yes. like each, each row, you had nine cards, you can shuffle them. So the order is totally out of whack, but it's still nine cards. Exactly. Each pile okay. is shuffled, but then you send them like, here's row one pile. Here's a row two pile. Here's column one pile. Here's section one pile, etc. Mm -hmm. So they can go through each of these piles in turn and, and look through them. And they'll mm -hmm. only see numbers one, th if the solution is correct, they'll find the numbers one through nine in each pile. And then after having gone through all the piles and verified that the numbers one through nine are each in each all are in each of the piles, they can be assured that I actually had the solution to this. And this is a non-interactive proof because anyone, any third party person who wasn't even witness to like the sharing of this information at all or the cards or the anything um, can come and look at those piles and actually see the same thing yeah. and be able to verify the same thing. 
So to to verify this, you need to have some trust that the prover has followed this protocol that they're not just mm-hmm. running like they're not just putting piles together with, with nine cards yeah. next to a Sudoku an empty Sudoku <laughs> yeah <board>. exactly <laughs> um, so that's where the zero knowledge proof bits get difficult it's like mm-hmm. how do you prove that someone is following this protocol and in this case there's um, like we can't go into detail but there's like you could have some commit schemes where you basically tag each of these cards with some identifier and then pre-commit to saying, um, you know, it should be in this order and then you hash that and you share mm. that as well. And blah, blah, blah. There's like a way that you could crypto, uh, cryptographically secure that they're following the protocol. Uh, so they need that along with the piles to be assured that they're not lying. And that's where the hash comes back in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hashes uh, cool. are are kind of everywhere in cryptography and uh, they're a very important part of uh, our world i love this example but i have this one question which is like why why would you actually need to have any cards face up or face down if in the end you're getting piles of like cards one through nine all shuffle like shuffled so i mean i just i don't understand why that actually is part of this yeah so i think that's part of the the proof that someone is actually following the protocol and, and how you deal with these like commit schemes. Mm. But essentially, uh, if you imagine this as an interactive protocol, um, where there's a, the person you want to prove that you have the solution to standing next to you, um, you place out the face up cards to prove that you have the solution <laughs> to the puzzle that they gave you, that it's not it. a solution to just any random puzzle. Um, because any random puzzle would produce the same sort of outcome. So the face-up ones are important to show that you're solving this particular uh, puzzle. Okay, cool. As I said, the this Sudoku example actually has uh, an interactive and a non-interactive version, and that's usually the case. Uh, like if you're reading online about zero-knowledge proofs, and you'll very often come across these interactive examples because that's the easiest way to explain these things. And um, it's how they first, like, were first developed. So, mm-hmm. um, like, it, once you start digging into this a little bit deeper, but, like, still scratching the surface, but you'll dig into this problem of, like, um, graph coloring and, and transforming problems onto graph coloring problems and how you can construct zero knowledge proofs for that, etc. Um, but in in sometime as well in the 80s, uh, there was a method developed that let let you transform interactive proofs into non-interactive proofs so by having um, cryptographically secure hash function you basically use a hash function to generate randomness uh, or to like create like to pick challenges in this protocol so you still have this like interactive aspect but you're generating challenges by yourself on your own side so then you send all of the challenges and all of the responses at the same time to the verifier. And this is how you, like, if you publish that, then then anyone can verify it, not just the one that was interacting. Which role here, though, is the hash function actually taking? This is the input information. So this is, let's, like, maybe let's go back to one of the examples. Like, on the Sudoku one, the hash would produce produce basically, like, random 
numbers or what what would it be yeah so like um in the interactive version of the sudoku one you have like if alice and bob are standing next next to each other alice is trying mm-hmm. to prove that she has the solution bob will go like give me the third row uh, give me the fourth column give me the first section and in between all of these alice would like replace all the cards but uh if you don't want to do this you could like take all of the cards and their positions and and everything hash that then you get a number out of that you transform that number into like uh, onto like the board saying like numbers between one and nine are sections numbers after that blah blah and Mm -hmm. then you um can use the output of this hash function to choose your first challenge and then you respond you hash the response then you get a new pseudo random number use that as the challenge for the next input and so on and eventually you'll have like a long challenge response cycle that you can send off to someone so it's essentially a way to generate random numbers and you don't need then like the verifier like the prover is an algorithm it's just the hash Like, a, it's not a person yeah. anymore. And the verifier still somehow needs to exist. Yeah, but, but they then it's get one-sided. all the data at once, and they can just, yeah. like, parse through all the data and verify everything at once. We've still really just scratched the surface of zero-knowledge proofs. This is, like, very introductory. We're just trying to get some of the concepts sort of clear for ourselves. Um, we will be, in future episodes, going deeper on a lot of these things. But I think in this episode, we can at least touch on like some of the use cases of these things. So what these zero knowledge proofs have existed since 1985. They've been used. uh, We know they're being used in blockchain technology, but what else are they being used in? Yeah. I mean, to me, uh, I I will often learn by looking at real world examples or like getting my hands dirty, working on something. Um, And they have been in use for a long time in various areas before blockchain. Uh, I think the most obvious one is like authentication systems um, mm. that use these schemes. So uh, when you log into whatever Facebook, you actually send your password in plain text to Facebook. Then on mm. their side, they're hashing that password and comparing it to the hash that's stored in their database. So they don't at least don't store your well, presumably, because we can't know, but uh, they presumably don't store your password in plain text. But they still get it, like their servers are still getting it. So if you don't want to share your password at all, I mean, one way would be to hash it on the client side and then send that hash to them. But sending hash the hash to them for something that's as small as a password is actually still done, like giving them quite a lot of information. Like they mm-hmm. can brute force that hash pretty easily so Mm -hmm. if you don't want to give them anything more than one bit of information like i have the password to this account Mm -hmm. that's where you need a zero knowledge proof and what else could you use zero knowledge proof for i think uh, the most useful ones that i've seen at least um again i'm a noob in this area i don't like look for this stuff daily (laughs) but uh uh, another one, another useful example that I came across is if you want to prove that you have the private key of a public key. So like public private key encryption is everywhere. 
Um, usually, like with PGP, was intended to be like the public-private key encryption of email, and it's never really taken on because, like, part of it is like if you send me a public key, do I know that that's yours? And, like, I can encrypt something with it and be ensured that only the person with the private key can read it, but it's still like, can I tie an identity to this? Not really. So these mm-hmm. all these like key servers have spawned up and that kind of try to t- tie an identity to a key and stuff like that. Uh, but you could actually use a zero knowledge proof to say, I have the private key for this public key and thereby like proving your identity um, mm. together with your public key. Um, and yeah, it, it uh, exactly how this is used in real life today, I'm not actually sure. Um, it would have also have to be like a, an interactive zero knowledge proof because if it if you send it out non interactively, then you then you're back to the same position where it's some it's public knowledge and anyone can copy it. Uh, so it it's only useful in the interactive sense. Hmm. And then it's so zero knowledge proofs have then obviously also become part of a lot of blockchain projects or concepts. Um, the most notable, I mean, there's a whole there's actually like a whole history of zero knowledge in blockchain, which I don't think we're ready to do in this podcast. And I want to, I really do want to bring on, I think we talked about this, bringing on some people who like have actually lived through some of this, know these people and have like seen the developments of, you know, things like zero coin and Zcash and, um, that's for future episodes. But, um, we are seeing, I mean, we do see zero knowledge pop up more and more in like with blockchain projects. I know that, I mean, obviously the most notable is Zcash, which is a token built like with zero knowledge proofs, like inherently built into its protocol. And I know that they're doing tons of research um, to actually, you know, make, from what I understood, like doing the real zero knowledge, actually you can maybe help me with this, but I think doing the real, like the the real proofs can be quite uh cpu intensive or like very it, it takes up a lot of yeah it's it's resource bandwidth. intensive in general yeah. but uh especially like memory intensive is is ah. the biggest like that's why you you can't really send a shielded transaction on zcash from a mobile phone for instance because your your phone doesn't have that much ram okay um, so even like if it was just cpu then you could just let it run for a long time but because but you don't actually... actually have that much RAM, it's it's literally impossible on most phones. Wow. Um, so yeah, they're, they're doing a ton of stuff there and like trying to make it like improve the UX, uh, improve the speed, improve the the resource resources necessary. So the next version they have upcoming, um, they they've been saying that they have it so efficient now that you could generate a shielded transaction on a on a phone. Cool. Um, so yeah, there's tons of stuff and active research in this area. And then some of the words that are often brought up are things like the ZK snarks. And sometimes we hear about Starks, which is apparently the future, future version. Yeah. Pure theory at this point. Uh, it's not pure <laughs> theory there. I've seen uh, conference talks where they actually show off some, some examples and stuff, but like <clears throat> the, the one talk I saw by one of the researchers uh, working on this. It was a great talk, and if I can find it again, I'll put it in the show, note, show notes, but it was quite a while ago. Um, 
but he was uh, showing some example programs. So snarks is just like zero knowledge, a non-interactive argument of knowledge, something something along those lines is what it stands for, <laughs> which is really like any zero knowledge proof. I don't know. I, I'm not exactly sure what the difference is or what, why making hmm. this separate distinction. Um, but Starks are like, you can prove the results of a computation. So you can like give someone a program and then prove that this is the result of running the program. And you can be, you can verify that this is the result of running the program without running it yourself, which is super like useful in a blockchain context, like wow. massively useful. But uh, they, the input program was something stupidly simple and it took like 200 gigs of RAM or something to generate <laughs> oh the proof. Okay. <laughs> so it was just like, you know, it's not feasible right now to use gotcha. it for anything, but it's still like it exists. It's a thing. So cool. It just needs to be improved. And then we've also seen um, like zero knowledge uh, library or like actually more like ZK snark libraries. Um, so that like these are basically just like taking ZK snark. It's usually ZK snarks, right? It's, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. Like, I, I don't know if, if uh, maybe snarks is the, the new way of saying, or saying zero knowledge saying proofs zero or knowledge? Like just okay. like it's that it's a specific subset of zero knowledge proofs that are useful. Like an interactive mm. zero-knowledge proof is not actually all that useful, usually at least. Mm. Uh, you need it to be non-interactive. So then like that is a snark, essentially a okay. non-interactive zero-knowledge proof. But we do see people building libraries that people can then use to implement zero-knowledge proofs or snarks uh, into their blockchain projects or... Yeah, into any project. So at the ZK Summit, the event we held... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a presentation by Howard Wu uh, on LibSnark, which is a C++ library for snarks. And uh, it's a great library. It just like has a wide API covering all kinds of snarks and how to use them. And I, have, I haven't dug into that library and like which languages have bindings to it or whatever. Mm. Uh, it's something that I want to do. But certainly, like with this library in hand, you you can you, you can use this today. Like, there's no issue here. You don't have to go in and know a ton of stuff. Uh, you can just like use this library. You don't have to re-implement the world here. Cool. Well, I think I mean we've covered a lot of ground in this episode. Do you have any last thoughts on zero knowledge proofs, Frederick? I think uh, there's huge potential. And I think it's really like the the area is really cool. It's like new to a lot of people, but it's also like old to a lot of people. So I think the more cross work we can get here, the better. Like actually, like to me, this is almost a way to in, involve real cryptographers in cryptocurrencies. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Yay! Which uh, would be good. Um, and. Uh, it has uh, huge potential for a lot of stuff. Um, mm. Like I, I was at this charting summit and we were talking about using zero knowledge proofs as a means to compress a like Merkle tree path. So if you go, this is a whole po podcast episode in itself, but there's a thing called stateless clients in the stateless client model. You need witnesses for uh, transactions basically saying i this is a valid transaction so you assume, like send a witness with it but these witnesses can be really long like they're they're a series of hashes that point to a specific place in a merkle tree 
And you can actually use a zero knowledge proof to say that, like, this is proof that this transaction references only this path in the Merkle tree. So you compress the whole nice. tree into like one zero knowledge proof, which is much smaller. Uh, nice, so it's like yeah. a compression mechanism. And yeah, there, there's tons of applications and uh, I'm excited to see where all of this goes. Um, I have a last thought on zero knowledge as well. We do, I do want to sort of admit something about the name of this podcast, if I can. We didn't originally name the podcast Zero Knowledge. The idea came up and Jack suggested it and we thought it was kind of cool. Sort of a double entendre. There's like Zero Knowledge Proofs and then there's like, we don't know anything Zero Knowledge. The podcast hosts have Zero Knowledge. <laughs> the podcast hosts have Zero Knowledge. Um, but I think what's really cool about it is it's actually has put us very much in the face-to-face -face with the zero knowledge community and the academics and the groups that are doing work on this. And uh, it's extremely exciting. And it's a really cool, it's a really cool sort of theme or concept to, if you want to look across a ton of different blockchain projects and not necessarily get caught up with some of the sort of groupings that we see happening in the ecosystem, zero knowledge is actually a really cool way to do it because there's a lot of different groups who are playing with it in different ways. And um, it's turned out to be like, yeah, it's just kind of a cool, it's kind of cool coincidence or cool, whatever, cool turn of events that we happen to, to sort of pick that name and then actually find this fucking awesome oh, <laughs> and find this great community around it. Anyway, thanks. I'm going to say a big thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, this was a denser episode than most. It's, yeah, it's funny because like it's we've never taken such an introductory point of view on anything like going basics as much as this. And yet it's probably one of the densest episodes. <laughs> it just kind of goes to show how much stuff there actually is to learn on this this topic. Totally. So, yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.